This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. TL Talk Radio, Season 2, Episode 26. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 26 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Funy-Hetton and Randy Ziegenfuss, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. And I'm Lynn Finney-Hatton. Good afternoon, Randy. Good afternoon, Lynn. Who is our <laughs> guest today? So today, our guest is Aaron Sams. Aaron has been an educator since 2000. He operates the education consulting firm, Sams Learning Designs. He's an adjunct professor at St. Vincent College and serves as an advisor to TED Ed. In 2009, he was awarded the Presidential Award for Excellence in Math and Science Teaching while teaching chemistry in Wood- Woodland Park, Colorado, and also serving as co-chair of the Colorado State Science Standards Revision Committee. Uh, Aaron has co-authored seven books on the flipped classroom concept, and we'll link to those in the show notes. He's an internationally recognized education keynote speaker and has trained thousands of teachers, administrators, and professors to integrate new technology with sound pedagogy. With experience in public, private, and home schools in both face-to-face, online, as well as blended learning environments, Aaron brings a unique educational perspective to any audience. He's a lifelong learner, reader, maker, and explorer. He has a BS in biochemistry and a master's in education uh, from Biola University. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks, Randy, for having me on. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. As are we. I think I first saw you a number of years ago when you did a keynote for uh, our state technology conference, Pete and C, and uh, saw you about a month ago at that same conference this year. So let's start the conversation around that. So we did see you at uh, at Pete and C, and you did a presentation that focused on how we might use technology more effectively. So talk to us a little bit about some of your ideas that you shared in that presentation. Yeah, that particular presentation was uh, more just kind of my musings on things I've been chewing about and certainly not anything I'm an expert in. But uh, that that presentation I framed around uh, four good reasons and four bad reasons that I'm kind of observing uh, in ed tech for why we use technology in schools and why we want to adopt technology in schools. So, I, you know, around 2007, 2008, I, when I kind of dived into educational technology, uh, mostly around the flipped classroom concept, but uh, that really allowed me to get a, get a pretty good idea of the, the, the lay of the land in terms of where things were heading in education technology. And um, so I, a few of the, a few of the, the not so great reasons that I think we have um, that we're diving into technology is one is obviously shiny object syndrome. Uh, <laughs> we love new things. 
I love shiny things. I love gadgets. I love technology. My dad was an early adopter. My one of my earliest childhood memories is playing pong with my father in 1978. So um, that it, my family is just like, let's just buy the cool stuff. And I, I see that I, I see that trickle into schools as well because the stuff is cool and we want it in our schools. Um, but we uh, there's kind of a lot of just blanket adoption of stuff um, mm-hmm. without a whole lot of, of thought going into it. So a lot of us are susceptible to that. I see that creeping into school, but but alternatively i think if we if we focus on choosing specific technologies not because they're cool and interesting and new but because they accomplish a particular task and i specifically i would say the task of amplifying the teacher amplifying the voice of the teacher amplifying the skills of the teacher um you know relieving some uh, some tasks from the teacher teachers are already overworked and finding technologies that make their life easier rather than harder i think that's something we should should uh, kind of look for i guess one of the other not so great reasons that i that i i see technology being used is that there's this conversation that, oh we got to get this so it'll engage the students they'll, they'll be excited to use it um they'll you know let's buy a bunch of ipads because the, 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 the kids like ipads <laughs> and that that's fine my kids like ipads i like ipads that's really great but if if we think about the thing that uh, that an ipad is it's it's really they're not they're not novel anymore. I mean, if you think about like a pencil, we don't look at a pencil in schools and go, sweet carbon that's been jammed into wood. I've been waiting for somebody to invent that. Yes. You know, we don't get excited about it. We pick it up when we use it. And that's kind of the ubiquity of a lot of these tools is getting to that point where people just pick them up and use them. They don't think about it. So like things like iPads, things like these little gadgets are becoming almost like a non thing, like a, like a pencil is. And so I think trying to, you know, moat the, motivate students with with gadgets and technology it's kind of a i don't know it's kind of a, a false entry point i think into why we should do this whereas the kids look at it and like well, well why wouldn't you use an ipad it's a thing that i touch every day you know why wouldn't i use a computer it's a thing that i use every day so it's not really enticing it's just kind of expected uh, the the third bad I- idea that i hear a lot around is uh, let's let's buy some things and use some technologies because uh, the, we want the kids to be career ready and job ready. Now we <laughs> want our students to leave school ready to enter the workforce. That That's a thing that we should do, but I don't think it's really technology dependent. I mean, anybody over the age of 40 probably learned how to type on a typewriter. So the technology of the typewriter is was not the important thing. The skill of using a keyboarded device is the thing that was the important skill that came out of that. So thinking with what's the long-term thing, not, not what's the object going to be in 20 years. Uh, that's how we should be, you know, adopting certain technologies. So, uh, you know, when I was a student, they said, oh, everyone has to use Microsoft Word or Microsoft Office products because that's what you're going to use in the workforce. And that's true to a certain extent, but like I use Google Docs and then I was using, uh, you know, LibreOffice for a long time, the you know, free version of these mm-hmm. things. So it's not the, the tool itself. It's can you use a spreadsheet and can you use you know word processing tools that's the important skill so thinking along those lines rather than the actual product itself are uh in terms of training students for uh for job preparedness or career readiness is is the more important thing and another focus uh along those lines is is this idea of efficiency Um, we want we want students to be more efficient. We need technologies to make our lives more efficient and more effective. And that, 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 that's the nature of technology. Technology is a thing that we use as humans or that we invent as humans to make our lives easier, to do something for us. And if they interfere and if they make our lives more difficult and clunky, then that's really just not a good technology. We shouldn't do that. But there's kind of a caveat, though, we have to be careful with, with efficiency. And I'll, I'll talk about that in just a minute. But Efficiency can't be their ultimate goal because there's always a sacrifice that comes with efficiency. 
I'll get to that in a sec. So, um, anyhow, the fourth thing is uh, we hear a lot of conversations about creativity. Let's go buy 3D printers so kids can be creative with 3D printers and design stuff. <laughs> Let's go buy, you know, pick your product, pick your device, pick your software for kids to be creative. And that's good. I'm glad we're finding new entry points for kids to get excited about learning, to get excited about doing and making things. But I, I want to caution us again that, that we don't lose the analog versions of any of these things as well. So one of my daughters, she loves building things out of cardboard. And I never want the digital tools to overtake her love of cardboard because she, that's her medium. That's the way, the way she works. So finding a good balance with digital and analog, I think, is where we have to go. We can't digitize uh, everything. So I think ultimately one of the good reasons we should be using technology, we should be talking about it, is to get students finding problems to solve and, and actively solving those, those problems. So thought processes, the way they, they look at the world, the way they think about the world, those are good reasons we should adopt technologies, not for the technology in and of itself, because as we all know, they're going to be obsolete, just you know, like a typewriter is now. One of the things that I really enjoyed about your presentation was at the end of it, uh, thinking about all those different areas and seeing a common thread, and that is thought or thoughtful or thoughtless sometimes, too. And it seems like in education, um, we really do tend to use technology in sort of thoughtless, thoughtless ways um, where we could be more thoughtful. Why do you think that is? And, and what do you think we could do to change that? Where's a good starting point to change that thoughtlessness into more thoughtfulness? Yeah, you know, I don't think it's just in education. I think it's in every industry and it's in every aspect of our life. We're, we're just kind of by nature easily distracted and look, ooh, look at the new fancy thing. And, you know, 30 years ago, you'd buy a refrigerator and the thing would last a lifetime. Now, they, you know, people designing refrigerators build in obsolescence. They design them to wear out and be broken down to purchase new things. And so part of it's inherent in the products themselves. Part of it is just, you know, our, our nature as is, is humans to just chase after the newest, latest thing. But I think one thing that you're, you're kind of of hitting on is that uh, the complexity of a tool, I think, really, really dictates a few things about it. So a, a simple tool can be used very simply, and its potential for use is pretty basic. Its potential for misuse is pretty basic, and its potential for abuse is pretty basic. So if you pick up a pencil, it's got a pretty, diff pretty narrow uh, uh, scope of use. You, you put graphite on paper pretty simple. Now, misuse of a pencil, I could use it as a doorstop if I need to. Okay, I can hold a door open with a pencil. It's not going to be great for that because it's not really designed for that, right? Um, but but I can use it as that. And, and if the door breaks the pencil, it's just a pencil. It's not it's not a big thing. So the, and and abuse, you know, there, there's very little damage you can do with a pencil. Now, you know, maybe you could, you know, you know, stick someone in the arm with it or something like that. But it's, it's going to be pretty hard to do some serious damage with a pencil. But then the more complicated our technologies get, let me, so take, a, take a, uh, like a smartphone, for example. Yes, it's great. We can connect with people. We can, we can uh, re reach out to the world. We have infinity in our pocket, as a friend of mine likes to say. So its use is extremely complex. Now, the misuse of it, I could use my iPhone as a doorstop. But if that door breaks my iPhone, I'm out 650 bucks, and that's uh, the, so the potential for misuse has greater ramifications. And then abuse really starts to trickle in the more complex these things get in terms of cell phone like addiction. Like I, I actually had to delete Facebook and Twitter from my phone a few weeks ago because I was about ready to lose my mind because I was just on it all the time, and it was con I, I even had notifications turned off, and I was still mm. using it too much. <laughs> so I had to delete these things. So the potential for abuse becomes great. And 
developers know that as well and they can get people to really continue to use their product because it's built in. The addiction of the device and the the propensity for for extreme use is built into the device and into the product. So the fact that technology is becoming so complex, it requires, as you're saying, more thoughtfulness. It requires more patience and more just let's get in and figure out exactly what the ramifications of this tool are than it ever had in the past because of the complexity of it. So here's an, here's an example. And this just happened. So right after Pete and C, it was my birthday the next weekend. And my kids got me a fountain pen. So I'd never owned a fountain pen before, but I thought, oh, that's kind of fun. You know, instead of the ballpoint pen, you got a, a you know, big old thing of ink in there and it just kind of oozes out through capillary action and it oozes, you know, and, and gravity. I'm like, that, that's about as low tech as it gets. That's really cool. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking at this and I start writing with it and I, I write really fast and I have horrible handwriting. And the pen forced me to slow down. Like you cannot write quickly with a fountain pen. It simply doesn't work. And then I started like practicing my letters like I did in fifth grade and relearning how to write in cursive because I haven't really done that. And I realized that cursive script is designed for a fountain pen. When you do it in a ballpoint pen, it's almost ridiculous. It's almost a joke. Like why would I want it? Like it doesn't make sense. But when you do it with a fountain pen, you're like, wow, there is beauty in this art form because it was designed for a particular technology. It was adapted for another technology and it didn't work as well. And it's falling out of favor partly because I don't think it works as well with a ballpoint pen and because of you know this typing culture that we have. So technology affects the way we interface with the world. I interface with paper differently with a pen, a ballpoint pen, and a fountain pen, and a pencil. And I interface with text in general differently with ink and some writing device and paper than I do when I type. So all of this to say that the complexity of technologies that we have are really complicating these things. And, and we haven't really thought through the ramifications of how the tool changes the interface. So I, you hear technology is just a tool. And it is a tool. But I don't think it's just a tool because it does, in fact, dictate the way we interface with ideas, with text, with thoughts, with education, with our brains. And we're just barely scratching the surface of what that actually means. So I have way more questions than I have answers is what I <laughs> was I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. So I want to go back to something that you said, the idea of amplifying the teacher and using technology to amplify the teacher. Can you give us an example of um, a teacher or a lesson where you've seen that happen as a really strong example? You know, I actually stumbled upon this by accident. So 2007, I started using video as a teaching tool, the videos that I made instead of giving live direct instruction, live lectures in my class. That's, you know, the kind of the concept behind flipping the classroom. And I was making my videos for my students, but I was putting them online publicly. And I started getting emails from around the world like, hey, thanks for putting those up. My chemistry teacher was not so great. And this really helped me out. And I was able to pass the AP chemistry exam and whatever examples like that. And I was like, wow. Any time prior to this in my career, I only reached, you know, the 180 kids that I had that I got to see every single day. But now I'm able to amplify my voice and I'm able to reach students all over the world. So that was a that was a really cool um, example of how my voice is amplified. But then I've also noticed a negative effect of that. Uh, even in my, my like my use of let's say social media, I'll say something stupid on Twitter, post something that I really hadn't thought through well on Facebook, and I offend <laughs> a lot more people when I post it on Facebook than I would mm -hmm. if I'm just sitting having a cup of coffee with somebody and just offending one person. So those are I, I guess two different versions of of amplification for the good or for the bad. <laughs> so thinking about your role as a science educator and your expertise with 
um, science standards and instructional practice through your lens? What does good science pedagogy look like? So pretty big question, but I think we can, I think we can narrow, <laughs> narrow it a little bit to, um, so, so science is, is full of content. There's like all this stuff that you're supposed to learn about science, but science as science is actually a process of the way we uncover information about the world and build models uh, based on the, the data and the observation that we've made. So we've got kind of got this tension between stuff we need to know and the way we actually figure it out. Now, it's kind of silly for a student to have to rediscover chemistry on their own. So there is a certain amount of information that we need to give them. So I think good science teaching is really striking a balance between content and curiosity. Here's some information, and here is an exciting way to, to, to learn about this thing. Uh, so that's why you know any science classroom that is devoid of labs, is devoid of demos, is devoid of inquiry, uh, it's not going to be a great science class if it's just content, content, content. Um, so I think striking a balance between that is probably one of the best approaches in science education, science instruction. You mentioned inquiry, and clearly inquiry, I think, really fits in well with, with that whole science model that you were just sharing in the previous question. And one of the things that we're trying to push ourselves towards is how do we put inquiry into other content areas? So any thoughts being a science educator and an expert in inquiry, how do we, how do we move other content areas uh, to embrace this idea of inquiry? Yeah, uh, I will be the first to admit I am not an expert in inquiry. Uh, it actually took me many years as a science educator to become comfortable with the process of inquiry in my classroom. And the balance that I, that I kind of found in my own teaching was this uh, idea of guided inquiry. So the teacher knows what the students don't know. And that's an important thing to understand because a lot of students don't know what they don't know and they don't quite know what types of questions to ask or in order to learn the science that they need. And that's the role of the teacher is to take them through that process. So um, good inquiry, I think, starts with really strong questions that are being asked that the students would then investigate on their own. Strategic questions that will then lead the students to the concepts that they need to uh, go through the process of uncovering through the inquiry process. And then, uh, you know, the concepts that they need to develop on their own in order to put those pieces together and, and come out of it with, a, with an appropriate understanding of the thing they're investigating. Um, and then, you know, the teacher intervening to clear up misconceptions. I think that global concept we see it a lot in science because of the nature of the scientific method, uh, but it's very applicable in any other uh, subject area. I, I know a lot of social studies teachers that take a, a real similar approach where they start with, you know, big questions. They have students and, you know, in, investigate those questions, read primary resources and go through the process of, you know, what was this person thinking when they said this statements? What was going on historically? What was going on, um, you know, contextually? What, was, what were the, the, the artistic ideas and the philosophical ideas of the day? Extracting all that out and putting it together as a coherent a package of of of, uh, of what was going on you know, math teachers same thing you know introduce have students investigate uh, um, a particular uh, topic you know develop uh, algorithms and equations on their own intervene if they're doing it incorrectly things like that but starting with those good uh, questions and just getting students uh, putting the right things in front of the students to get them to the point uh, they need to get without just uh, just pumping them full of content and certainly that's no easy easy task, right? <laughs> you know, what, um, what can we do as leaders to support that shift in science education? You know, how can we support our teachers and, and moving from exactly what you're talking to talking about that content to asking those really good questions and providing different opportunities? 
Hmm. Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. Uh, there's a, when I'm kind of observing in science land, and I kind of have to put on my science hat, my technology hat, and kind of trade them off. But they're they're kind of mushing together with this conversation of STEM and STEAM education, mm-hmm. and and that's kind of cool. I like this idea of of integrating science and technology and engineering and mathematics and getting the artistic concepts in there. I, I love that we're, we're we're starting to blur the lines because that's that's the way we all operate on a daily basis. I don't think okay. Okay, well, you know, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to do sciencey things today, and to, and then I'm going to, you know, work on some mathy things. They, they all just kind of smush together. And as someone who loves to tinker with things, someone who likes to make things and design things, and I have you know 30 different unfinished product projects at any given time in my house, I love to see that 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 approach to uh, to learning and investigating the world is, is coming into schools. The challenge that I'm seeing, and this is something that I think administrators and leaders can do, is to make sure that STEM doesn't become siloed. The point of STEM and STEAM was to integrate these things, and now I start to see STEM classes popping mm-hmm. up and STEAM classes popping up. So we, we took the thing, the, the thing that we're trying to, to integrate, and we instantly stuck it in its own little silo. Um, so I think just just preventing it from from be, becoming compartmentalized and making sure that that that, that the thinking that, and the idea of of, of, of STEM and STEAM and design thinking and all of that starts to permeate out into other parts of the school, all parts of the school, rather than just getting compartmentalized in a particular class, in a particular department, or a particular section um, of the building. Uh, another thing, too, is science and STEM and things like that. It's really expensive, and it takes a ton of time, A, to learn how to use the stuff, B, to manage all the equipment, and C, to just acquire it and maintain it. And that that's often overlooked. I know I would get, I, I was a really bad equipment manager in the classroom and my lab was a train wreck trying to keep inventories of everything. Cause I mean, we're legally obligated to do that with all these chemicals there. That's a major challenge. And, um, so finding resources, finding support to be able to help facilitate that is another great way. Cause it's, it's a complicated, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to denigrate any of the other fields, but there's just a lot of extra stuff mm-hmm. that goes along with science and STEM education. I think too, the fact that our system is is siloed because we have all these subjects makes things like stem it's easy for us to just say that is that stem class it's kind of that way too with this idea of maker spaces too yeah. like there's a maker space down the hall that sounds very much like the computer lab down the hall yeah. that we used to do <laughs> now we're into yeah. this you know why can't make the idea of maker spaces and the concepts that are behind that be something that we embrace systemically rather than like Here's a little silo where you will go make for this 30 minutes. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's this, it's the same sort of thing. It, that's my connection I'm making from what from what you're sharing. So uh, you mentioned, I think it was back in 06 or 07, um, you as a science educator started this uh, idea of flipped classroom and flipped lessons. Uh, share with us a little bit about what that is. What does that look like? And how does that fit into your pedagogical and technological vision of the classroom? Yeah. Um, so, you know, 2006, 2007, that's about the time uh, Google acquired YouTube and um, easy to create, easy to publish video it became a thing you know before then you'd have to you know get out your big old camcorder and you know do all some all sorts of complicated video editing we can do that with a thing that lives in our pocket now and and get content out real quickly so uh, i saw that as an opportunity to to get myself away from the front of the classroom to deliver content to an individual learner through video rather than to a large group 
So instead of shooting for the middle and hoping I get most, I was able to to deliver content to individual learners and use the classroom time then uh, to, to actually differentiate. For the first time in my career, I was able to differentiate for all sorts of learners based on their current understanding and what they needed to do next. So, you know, you hear about flipped classroom, people talk a lot about video, and that's a component of it. But really the magic of that is how your classroom time is reinvented. And that's what, so flipping my class was my transition. It was my transition from traditional stand in front of the classroom to teacher who embraces inquiry, who embraces project-based learning. And had I not gone through the process of archiving my content so it was still there, because I didn't want to abandon content, make that available to the individual learner and then facilitate the learning process better in my classroom, I, I wouldn't have been able to make that transition had I not adopted hmm. the idea of using video. And I hear that continually from teachers around the world when I do workshops, when I do pro professional development sessions and speak at conferences, they said, I'm going through the same transition and I could not have embraced project-based based learning had I not gone through that process. So a lot of teachers are using this as a stepping stone to get to more student-centered, mm -hmm. more um, uh, more active learning environments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and that's exciting to me. So... I, I don't think that means that the, that the flip is going to go away. I think it's going to be it's going to become so pervasive and such a an, uh, such an integral part of the educational um, fabric that we're not even going to think about it anymore. Again, we don't we don't think about picking up a whiteboard marker or picking up a pencil. We just do it. We just pick it up and use it. We're pretty close to the time where we're not even going to be talking about the novelty of using video as a teaching tool because we all just do it. Something breaks, what do you do? You hop on YouTube, you learn how to fix it. You want to learn how to do something, you jump online, you do a quick search and you watch a little video that shows you how to do it. It's becoming a natural process of how we find information where, it, it's again, it's going to be a non-thing very, very quickly, but a lot of teachers still need to go through that process. So I see it as a very useful stepping stone or bridge to get very, very traditional teachers or teachers who, who are kind of feel glued to the front of the room or, or kind of bogged down by content to, to start to lay some of that aside and, and make students and learning the center of the classroom. Interesting perspective. So you're transitioning and I'm excited to hear what, what are you transitioning to? What, yeah. what's next for Aaron Sams? And oh, I've always got a million ideas and I, and it's always hard for me to like decide which one to do first. And so the other day, um, I, I picked up this book, it's called the seven day startup. It's basically how to, how to get an idea up and running and launched and turned into a business in a week. And so I decided, you know what, I'm going to try it. What can I do in a week and get up and running. And one thing that I've always wanted to do is to just to build a team of awesome educators. So you know, I, prov I do a lot of PD. I, I travel around a lot uh, around this flipped classroom concept. I'm kind of tired of, of traveling and I want to start like bringing all these other amazing educators that I've met along the way and building a team to send them out, getting their voices heard and have them provide, um, you know, awesome resources uh, for other teachers and teachers listen to teachers. So I thought, let's start a company that's active teachers, active people who are working in schools who can provide professional development. So I launched pdbyteachers.com the other day. Um, it's still up and running, or still in development, I should say, uh, but I hope to have it launched by Monday. So I found a team. I've got about 14 people on board. Um, we've got a model for how we can uh, start you know, getting the word out, and when people make requests, we can farm out the, the people who are available and uh, we give, match the, the, the school, uh, their need, and their budget with the skill set of the people on my team. So I've got that up and running. 
Yeah, pdbyteachers.com. The other thing I've got in my my back pocket is uh, participated in a startup weekend EDU here in Pittsburgh last February, so about a year ago now. Uh, my team ended up um, winning the event, and we turned it into a company. So we uh, we're, we're, so I've got a few other things that we're hatching, but that one's called Project Playground. Um, and uh, what that is going to be, uh, we've got a, a learning science researcher on our team, a counselor, a developer, and a couple teachers, and myself. Uh, this is a tool that we're building to help students be able to uh, self-assess their ability to collaborate and communicate, as well as uh, teachers to observe and assess the students and their abilities to collaborate and communicate. And uh, what we're finding is in our pilots that we're running right now and in our our uh, prototype, uh, we've got some uh, a really strong metric that helps uh, uh, that that actually can measure students' abilities to collaborate, and we're we're hoping to build in. Uh, some some grouping suggestions based on the students' growth, like put this kid with this kid, so that they will grow in their ability to communicate and collaborate better. So that's uh, still kind of in research mode and development mode, but that's looking like what it's uh, going to turn into. So we're excited. We're in about uh, 14 classrooms here in the Pittsburgh area piloting it, and uh, very excited to see what that's going to turn into in the future. Wow, some exciting opportunities heading our way, and we'd probably love to talk to some of those teachers that you have coming on coming on board. I just scanned the um, website, and we'll link it in the show notes. Um, it looks like you have a team already built, and uh, director of details. That's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's Gabriel. He, he's the guy that keeps my life organized. So. Oh, we all yeah. need one of those. And, and that'd be Lynn. No. <laughs> Not me. Yeah. I don't know about that. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Aaron. Um, in our show notes, we will link for our listeners. You can learn more about Aaron's work um, at his website, AaronSams.com. You can check him out on Twitter at ChemicalSams. Uh, we link the new project, PDByTeachers.com. Can't wait to look at that a little more. And also a link to the store and check out those books on flipped learning. Each episode, we leave you with a couple of questions to think about with the idea of provoking conversation. This episode's question, what shifts in practice will you focus on to move your classroom more towards inquiry and effective use of technology? And what supports will you need? If you've enjoyed today's episode, would like to comment or just find out more about the resources and links that we shared, check out the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season two, episode 26. We'd love for you to rate the show on iTunes. Let us know your star rating and consider leaving a one or two sentence review. If you have time to do that, you'll help new folks discover this content. That's it for now. Thanks for joining us this episode. We'll see you next episode for a conversation with another innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Aaron. Thanks, Aaron. Bye-bye. Bye. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.